Luke 2, 40 through 52. Let's read it together before we jump in here. Luke 2, 40 through 52. It says this. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There's a question that people have been wondering about for centuries. Christians have been asking this question for many, many centuries. And it's a question that naturally follows on the heels of Christmas. The basic question is this. What happened after Jesus was born? What happened after Jesus was born? I mean, we've just spent weeks preparing our homes and our hearts for the coming of Jesus. So what happens now? What happened after Jesus was born? Now, this is a tough question to answer because there are 30 years from Jesus' birth to his public ministry about which we have very little actual information. Only here in Luke chapter 2 that we just read do we have any information about Jesus' childhood. That's a fascinating story that we're going to look at today. But before we dive a little more closely into Luke 2, here's the more specific question that we want to answer uh, today. It's a question that will be most helpful for us if we ask it this way. How did Jesus go from helpless baby in a manger to a king working miracles? How did Jesus go from a helpless baby in a manger to a king working miracles? Now, this question is hard to answer for a couple reasons, not just because we don't have a lot of information like we've already talked about, but also because we approach this question with some irrational and perhaps unwarranted and even unbiblical assumptions about Jesus' childhood. By default, we often hold to this theory about Jesus' childhood that doesn't actually account for him being fully human. We have this idea that in his humanity, Jesus was instantly all-knowing and all-powerful the moment he came out of the womb. We like to think that sort of as a human, he was born with all possible information and all possible power sort of, you know, downloaded into him matrix style. But, But that's not actually how it worked. That's actually an early church heresy called monophysitism and a couple other things that uh, was rejected early on that, that, that rejected it because it said those two natures were commingled. They were mixed up in this one new nature. We believe that it's a 
hypostatic union, if the nerds among us want to go look that up, meaning he has both these natures, but they are in the same person and yet distinct. So this may sound sort of new and weird to you, but, but Jesus was all flesh and blood. He was fully human. He was also fully divine and fully God. But in this series, for two weeks, we're going to focus on the flesh and blood part. Flesh and blood part. Because it's straight up Bible to say he was fully human. He was flesh and he was blood. And so he therefore, as a result of that, we'll talk about today, had to learn things. We often don't think about that with Jesus in his childhood, but Jesus had to learn things. We know this from a number of passages. If you look these up later, uh, there's just a few. Philippians 2, 6 to 7. Romans 8, 3. Hebrews 5, 8. And our passage today. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 3. And uh, Hebrews 5, 8 are a few of those key passages. We learn this idea that Jesus had to grow. He, he grew. And so that sort of complicates us answering this question about what happened from from helpless baby in a manger to a king working miracles. Because we find it easier, sort of as a matter of intellectual convenience, to mix up those natures. We like to think that Jesus came right out of the womb, speaking every language fluently and shooting lasers out of his fingers. Really. I mean, it sounds a little funny to say, but that's kind of how we think about him. We like to think about Jesus as if he had seen the movie of his own life before he was actually born. I I call this the no-crying-he-makes philosophy of Jesus' childhood. You know the story, that uh, the the song that we sing, Away in a Manger. We sing that part about no-crying-he-makes. Every time we sing that, I think, Jesus the baby didn't cry? (laughs) I mean, do we really really think that, that coming with the idea of perfection is that the idea that a baby doesn't cry? Because... Is somebody going to try and make a rational argument for the idea that the idea of perfection carries with it no crying? Jesus cried as an adult. Listen, by default, we often have this sort of unwarranted, irrational theory about Jesus' childhood, the no crying he makes philosophy, that doesn't actually account for him being fully human. Jesus was flesh and blood. Your salvation depends upon it. So we come to this question with some confused ideas. Let me say it this way. As a baby, (laughs) Jesus wasn't sitting there thinking to himself, man, I just can't wait for my motor skills to catch up with my knowledge so that I could teach these ignorant people. That's not how it worked. He was flesh and blood. Fully God, yes but also fully human. And in order for him to be fully human, he had to grow. He had to learn. This has some amazing implications for us because in terms of his human self-awareness, Jesus was just a baby in a manger like any other baby. Sure, the call of God was on his life. Sure, he did things perfectly. But he had to learn his calling the same way you and I do. He had to learn who he was as Son of God with the same power of the Holy Spirit you and I do. He had to learn to live by faith the same way we do. 
He had to grow and learn the same way we do. Now, he happened to do every single one of those things perfectly in ways that we can't even conceive of. But he did so, and here's the amazing part. He did all of that with the same exact power and method of the Holy Spirit that we have available to us. That's the amazing part of this. So how did Jesus go from from baby in a manger to a king working miracles? Two words. It comes straight from the text. It's the first thing Luke tells us about him in Luke 2.40. He grew. He grew. He grew. He learned. He developed. Now I'm going to start you off by showing you something in Luke 1.80. If you have a, a moment, go ahead and turn back there to Luke 180. We'll put this on screen if you don't. We're going to jump to 240 in just a second. But Luke 180 points out something important for us to know here. It says this. This is actually Luke talking about the development of John the Baptist. He says this. The child, meaning John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit. So Luke points out here two things about John the Baptist. Number one, he grew. And number two, he became strong in spirit. That's all you need to know here. Uh, move along, Obi-Wan. Now turn to our passage for today. Today, in 2.40, we pick up Luke's description of Jesus' growth, and it says this. Luke describing Jesus, verse 40. The child grew and became strong. It says the same exact thing it did about John the Baptist, but keep reading. There's a two-fold description about John the Baptist, fourfold about Jesus. It says, he grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Luke gives us a fourfold description, twice what he just described about John the Baptist he uses to describe Jesus. And he says four things. Number one, he grew. He grew. Don't miss that. Don't just gloss over this. It seems small, but it's big. It's the first thing Luke is careful to tell us about here. He grew. Listen, folks. Children grow. Jesus grew. We like little baby Jesus in the manger, but we cannot keep him there. We need this baby to become ready to take on the sins of the world. We need this baby to grow to defeat the powers of darkness and of evil. We need this helpless baby to grow past Christmas Jesus to become strong and mighty, defeat the powers of evil, Easter Jesus. So he grew. It's not unimportant. It's huge. He says, number one, he grew. Number two, it says, he became strong. That may be about physical strength. Probably given the context, it's actually about spiritual strength. He says, number three, he was filled with wisdom. That's different than Luke's description of John the Baptist. It says, number four, the favor of God was upon him. Also different than Luke's description of John the Baptist. So, so Luke's description is obviously saying that Jesus is more than John the Baptist. But Luke is also using this phrase about the favor of God to point us to Samuel. And the description of Samuel that is used in 1 Samuel 2.26, he mentions this idea of the favor of God. That's the tie-in there. In fact, look quickly at 2.52 at the end of our passage. Luke also mentions the favor of God being upon Jesus. We'll put it on screen here for you right now. Thank you. There is Luke 2.52 and a parallel with 1 uh, 1 Samuel 2.26. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And the description of Samuel is very similar. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. 
Luke is putting this all together here to make sure we understand that Jesus' description is twice what John the Baptist's was. Luke begins and ends this section by talking about Samuel and pointing out that God's favor was on Jesus, and he draws our attention to this other uh, figure of Samuel. Luke is basically putting this all together saying, listen, Samuel was great. John the Baptist was great. But listen, the work of God in this Jesus is going to absolutely knock your socks off. It's going to redefine what you think is possible in a human being. Just wait for the work of God in this Jesus, because that's going to blow you away. So with all that sort of set up in mind as background, Luke gets into the story. Keep reading here. Verse 41. We'll pick up the pace a bit here. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. Luke points this out to make clear that Jesus was brought up in a very faithful Jewish home. Nazareth was about 80 miles from Jerusalem, and so it would have taken them a good three days to get there. And Luke is careful here to tell us that both Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast at the feast of Passover. Only men were required to go to this. Women and children were not. They don't always go. But Luke says, listen, the whole family went together. So he's saying Jesus was brought up in a faithful Christian home. Verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. This is the age uh, when Jewish boys would basically, if they were ready for it, start to be sent off into to sort of a Bible college if they showed any promise in becoming a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. They would start following a particular rabbi and apprentice under these rabbis to see if they could sort of cut it. Now, this is not the same as a bar mitzvah. That was a, a later and a, an entirely different Jewish tradition. This is sort of this intensity of educational training that would happen at the age of 12. So it's about that time that this incident happened in Jesus' life. Keep reading. It says they went up according to custom, meaning Jerusalem was up on a hill no matter where you came from. So they went up according to custom. Now it starts to get interesting. Verse 43. When the feast was ended, took seven days, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh-oh. His parents did not know it. Houston, we have a problem. But supposing him to be in the group. Now, they assumed he was with them, which sounds like Joseph and Mary were being negligent parents, obviously. Uh, But it's more complicated than that. At the time, it would have been common to caravan with extended family and other families from their hometown for protection on a long trip like that. And for the Passover, which was the the, the largest and the most important feast, there certainly would have been others with them, probably from their own family in their hometown of Nazareth, who were traveling with them together as a group for protection. So that's why, verse 44, they supposed him says, supposing him to be in the group. They supposed that he was in the group. So they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Verse 45, when they did not find him, they thought to themselves, ah, he's the Messiah. He can find his way home, right? No. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now press pause for a few minutes here. You can just imagine that conversation between Mary and Joseph, right? Well, we have lost the Son of God. (laughs) 
Ah, we're going to tell this story to the rest of our friends and relatives. We have lost the Messiah. Oh, you know, the, the anointed one come to save the world from their sins. Yeah, no more Parents of the Year award for us. That's probably the kind of conversation that went on <clears throat> with perhaps a little more accusatory tone here and there. All kidding aside, though, have you ever had that moment of instant dread when you lose a child in a crowd? Or you don't know where your kid is? We just recently lost our newly adopted two-year-old daughter at a hotel for about five, maybe six minutes. It's a terrible, terrible feeling. We were all downstairs in the hotel lobby, sort of, sort of calmly panicking if such a thing exists. I was walking around the outside of the building, just kind of praying, Lord, please protect her. Lord, please protect her. Lord, please protect her. Well, it turns out the little stinker was very just nonchalantly standing in front of the elevator, pressed the button to go up, goes inside. We're all sitting there in the hotel lobby. Could have seen it all, didn't see a thing. She goes up and presses number two. Lots of other button options to push. To push. Lots of treacherous options, which could have stopped the whole operation. She presses number two, goes right upstairs to our room, knocks on the door, is waiting for us. In her mind, in her mind, we were the ones who were lost. In this story, in Jesus' mind, and we'll get there in a second, his parents were the ones who were lost. We'll get there in a second. But I do take some comfort in knowing that Mary and Joseph temporarily lost the Savior of the world. So that being the case, they set off to find him. Verse 46, they set off to find him, and after three days, they found him in the temple, meaning three days had elapsed from the time they left Jerusalem to the time they went back and found him. And here's why Luke is telling us this story. They found him where? In the temple. In the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This is that moment where Jesus later on says, where did you think I'd be? You're the ones who's lost... I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what you're doing. I'm not just making this up. It's in the text. Keep reading. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, it was common for students of the scriptures to literally sit at the feet, to literally sit at the feet of the rabbis and listen and ask questions, which is what Jesus has described here as doing. Which means clearly Jesus loved to learn. How often do we, with humble submission to growth and learning, sit at the feet of others and just ask questions? If you're anything remotely like me, those opportunities are opportunities to begin to tell everybody how much you know and to justify oneself with one's wisdom but the savior of the universe who could outthink every one of these rabbis sits at their feet and asks questions. Jesus is the model for learning and growth, friends. It takes humility to do that in a way which God can use as work in your lives. I mean, Jesus loved to learn. He could have wandered around 
to the local movie theater or the video game or, or, or arcade, but he wound up at the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This was the growth process right here. Jesus sitting at the feet of the rabbis discussing the things of God. And it says he learned well. Look at verse 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He spoke with great wisdom. He listened, but he spoke with great wisdom. They had never seen anything like it before, especially from a 12-year-old. And when his parents saw him, in contrast to all those who were at the temple listening to Jesus and talking with the rabbis and asking questions, in contrast to that, verse 48, when his parents saw him, it says, they were, they were astonished. <laughs> Clearly, they didn't expect this and were annoyed at Jesus. I mean, you can hear the dis- disapproval in Mary's voice here in verse 48. This is the biblical orange, origin, by the way, of, of Jewish motherly guilt. Look at verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated me the... No, no, she didn't say that. She said, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. We're beside ourselves here, worried about you. And you're sitting around chatting away with the rabbis. Sort of the tone here, verse 48. Listen to what he says. This is amazing. Listen to what he says. Verse 49. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? You're the ones who are lost. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is an incredible statement from Jesus. Why would you be surprised at this, he says? You yourselves were told by an angel before I was even born that this should make sense. But you still don't get it. It should not be a surprise to you at all that I am here at the temple doing my father's business. I'm not lost. I am home. They still didn't get it. Verse 50 tells us outright. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now listen to this amazing twist in verse 51. This is the Savior of the universe. Wisdom beyond his years. His parents don't get it. He does. And yet, he submits to them. Verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Even Jesus had things to learn from being submissive to his parents. This is an amazing statement about Jesus' commitment to learning and to growth. It says his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And then Luke summarizes verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man which is one of the coolest things anybody could ever say about you. (laughs) They increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I think there are a few things for us to to draw out from this. Three principles I want to talk about that we can draw out from this. And I'll put these together at the end in just a succinct statement, but we'll draw these out as we go and make some practical uh, applications for us. Number one, Something we learned from this story is that Jesus loved to learn about God through the Word of God. 
Jesus loved to learn about God through the word of God. This was a fundamental part of his growth process and a fundamental part of his preparation for ministry. He was found sitting among the teachers of the law. Let me be real frank with you about this for a second in a practical way. We live in a culture that overemphasizes our work and ministry as a primarily and almost solely practical, hands-on only endeavor. And that says that the life of the mind and heart or spiritual learning or a deep personal relationship with God doesn't matter in comparison to hands-on practical work. That's the culture we live in. We live in a culture that too easily throws aside learning and time alone with God as an impractical work. What were you doing sitting here with the rabbis when you should be home with us? Get out there and start doing something tangible for goodness sakes. Friends, this can be misguided and short-sighted. It is extremely viable work to study the things of God in His Word. And it is work that seems to be in increasingly short supply among believers. Friends, here's why this is important. We're going to write it down. This is so good. This is important to get. You cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. Cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. You will turn your work into a human endeavor that is about self-righteousness. You will not avoid that without the wisdom of God. You cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. Let me make this a little more practical. We're going to spend a little more time on number one versus numbers two and three. I'm going to make this a little more practical in a way that hits at the crux of the issue for us here at First Christian. And what I'm about to say applies to me, but it applies to you in your life as well. When I am absorbed in the pages of notes and biblical studies and commentaries, and I am praying for wisdom, and I am praying for guidance, and I am writing, and I am editing, and I am fasting, and I am praying. When I am deeply engaged in the Word of God as your pastor, I am shepherding the flock. Some of you don't believe this yet, but it's true. This impractical work of the Word is the most important and ultimately the most practical work that I can do as your pastor. You may measure my effectiveness as a church leader based on whether I have shepherded you, shepherded you in a way that you expect or in a way that you learned in an unbiblical church structure. But I measure my effectiveness as a church leader and as a believer based on whether I have been faithful to what I know God has called me to do. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. For us at FCC, whether I take my role that seriously or not can be the difference between maintaining a gospel ministry for the found only or a gospel ministry for the lost as well. Because if we as a church stop short at ministry to self, 
and we are not shepherded through the Word of God to see past ourselves, to have God's heart for the lost, then I and we have been unfaithful to the Word of God. And that's true for you. I just happen to be talking about it for my particular context. But it's no less true for every one of us as a follower of God. Listen, friends. If the Word doesn't do the work, it doesn't work. If it's not the truth of the Word of God working through God's people, this endeavor becomes human. And this truth isn't just about me and my role as pastor. Your Christian life won't work if it's not fueled by deeply engaging with who God is through the Word. You'll mess it up. You'll turn it into self-righteousness. You just will. All right, that's number one. (laughs) Number two, Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Jesus' parents are annoyed when they find him. And they say, son, why have you treated us so? Jesus answers their question by saying, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? When he answers like this, he is making a statement about whose son he really is. Jesus is stating his identity as God's son. He may be only 12, but he already gets it. He may not know everything that it entails like the cross yet, But when he answers their question this way, it shows that he gets it. How could you not know that this is my work? My father has called me to do something important and I want to be ready. That's what he's saying. My father has called me to do something important and I want to be ready. Jesus' mission required growing into that maturity. So my question for us is this. Does your mission, does your mission require growth into maturity? Or are your sights set so narrowly on personal earthly goals that your mission doesn't really require you to grow at all? Maybe you feel so little urgency to sit at the feet of the Word of God because your mission isn't calling you to something like Jesus' mission. Who needs to grow when your mission is to make your 401k secure? Who who needs to grow when your mission is to secure a personal kingdom? You don't need this if that's your mission. You don't. Perhaps the lack of urgency to seek after wisdom from the truth of the Word of God, like Jesus, is because your mission isn't his kingdom but yours. Straight up. Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Thirdly, Joseph and Mary's mission of preparing Christ for his mission is our mission. Joseph and Mary's mission of preparing Christ for his mission is our mission. I believe... I believe that Joseph and Mary might have been amazing parents. They might not have been the best parents ever. But whatever they were, God used it. 
And God was going to achieve his purposes in Jesus. But Joseph and Mary were clearly called to be a part of Jesus being ready for this mission. They were supposed to know that their task was to help prepare Jesus for his mission. But he says, did you not know? How, how could you not know that I'm supposed to be here? <laughs> Listen, their mission was Christ's mission. Same with us today. So when it comes to raising children, when it comes to raising children, we must realize they are not ours to be raised to be respectable citizens and to have a good, secure job. If they have that, great icing on the cake. <laughs> but the cake is becoming a disciple. And if you go for the icing to the exclusion of cake, you've misunderstood your mission as a parent. The mission is to grow this baby into a disciple. So stop usurping God's mission for his children with your mission for your child. Jesus was raised by parents who understood this is not our baby. This was given to us to be stewarded for the glory and grace of God to be made known exactly like all of us who have children. So here's the task, friends. Taking into account all three of these principles we've just talked about, here's the take-home task for us today. Sit at the feet of the Word of God so that, those, so that you and those in your care are growing into readiness for the mission of God. Sit at the feet of the Word of God so that you and those in your care are going into readiness for the mission of God. Let's pray, friends.